This weekend marks the 100th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, a violent confrontation between Dublin citizens and the police when in the early days of the Dublin lockout, the very early days, police baton-charged crowds on O'Connell Street, which was of course then known as Sackville Street, when the union leader uh, Jim Larkin was attempting to speak. Hundreds were injured and two men, James Nolan and John Byrne, who were injured in the baton charges the night before, later died. The lockout, which went on for five months and affected some 20,000 workers, is the focus of a major history series running on RTE Radio 1 at the moment called Citizens. Episode 4 goes out tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock. You may have heard the discussion on Dublin at the time, Dublin in 1913, with myself and a panel of historians a few weeks back. Well, today I'm joined by a very different uh, and a unique gathering, people with a direct family connection to not just the story itself, but to the main protagonists of the day, namely Jim Larkin, James Connolly and William Martin Murphy. With me in studio is Stella McConnell, Jim Larkin's granddaughter, her niece Aoife Breslin, Larkin's great-granddaughter. Aoife is also a councillor with the Labour Party for Kildare South. Also here in studio is James Connolly Heron, a great-grandson of James Connolly. And uh, Connolly, of course, was not just a key player on the union side in the lockout, but went on to lead the Irish Citizens Army in the Easter Rising. And on the line from England, I have uh, Christopher Martin Murphy, who's from Sydney in Australia, great-grandnephew of the man who led some 400 Dublin employers at the time, and effectively the employer's sacked workers who were members of Larkin's Transport Union. Let me just establish that uh, Christopher is there. Christopher, good morning to you. Hello there. I'm actually in Sydney. Oh, you are actually uh, in Sydney. I thought you were in in England. Okay, well... God, uh, no. I've I've lived in Sydney (laughs) since 1969. Okay, well, it's a very, very good line. So uh, that's uh, that's, that's really... Thank you. Yeah, you too. Hello, everybody. We'll get back and we will talk to you in in a few months. But let me start with, uh, with you, Stella, because unlike anybody else here, you actually have personal memories of your grandfather, uh, Jim Larkin. You were, I think, about 12 years of age when he died in, in 1947. What are your memories of him? What was he like as a person to you as a 12-year-old? Well, to me as a 12-year-old, he was a lovely person. He was a very gentle man to me, but I knew him from the time I was about four because my dad would bring me into meetings on Sunday mornings into Unity Hall in Barbara Street and he'd sometimes leave me with my granddad. Your dad was Dennis Larkin, who was Dennis also a trade Larkin, unionist exactly. as well. Exactly. And he'd leave me with my granddad uh, while he went to his meeting. So therefore, I knew him quite well. But he was always very gentle to me. He had a fine voice, all right. But with me, he was very gentle. And how did other people respond to your uh, to, to, to your grandfather when you were with him? Or did he, you know, was he exclusively devoting his attention to you? No, they they responded very well. They they also gave me attention, of course, <laughs> because I was quite small then, you know. But um, but the thing that uh, one of the things that I remember then was at his funeral, you know, when when I when I was twelve, because it was such a horrific thing, and. There was snow all over the ground. It was 19, January 1947, 1947, which I think was a particularly famously it was. harsh winter. It was. And we were going along, the funeral, we were going along, and there were men digging with brushes and shovels to try and fix the roads, you know. But when they saw my granddad's funeral, they stopped and they put their brushes on the shoulders 
and they fell in behind it. And thinking later, I thought that was a wonderful thing for them to do. They walked all the way up to Glasnevin like that behind his funeral. And I thought that was lovely. I've always been curious because because of his origins and because of the fact that he moved around quite a lot. What his accent was like, because when you hear or see people portraying James Larkin, some people do it with a Liverpool accent. Some people do it in a Dublin accent. But he had, I think, I mean, we talked about this because we we, we met about uh, 10 days or so ago and we we talked about this. And he, to you, had a a strange combination of accents. Just a mixed type of accent. He had not got a definite uh, Liverpool accent or anything like that. It was just a mixture and I suppose because he had been in Liverpool and uh, the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland and, and America, and as, America well. as well, that it was just a, a normal type of accent, really, you know. Um, difficult one for any actor to try and, and mimic, so they yes. obviously go for one or the other and who can blame them. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, because we have the centenary, to some extent, your grandfather is being reassessed and we are we're hearing a lot about the fact that uh, Jim Larkin was a very difficult man. Jim Larkin was somebody who created a cult of personality. He was somebody who alienated um, the British unions who were essentially funding the, the, the lockout. Um, now, I presume as a 12-year-old, you wouldn't have been conscious of, of any of that. But do you accept some of those criticisms of your grandfather? Well, I wouldn't have been conscious of that. I suppose I could accept a certain amount of it, all right. But I think that from his beginnings in Liverpool, when he was in such a bad way, when he had to leave school at 11 to get some money for his mother to get food, that he had that notion that that he just wanted to help those who had nothing or had very little. And that's the way he spent his life, really, I think. The lockout, of course, has been oversimplified as some sort of a direct confrontation between Jim Larkin and uh, William Martin Murphy. It was clearly anything but. Um, uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Martin Murphy in, in, in Sydney. Now, obviously, you did not know your great-grandfather. He died just six years after the lockout. He was dead by, by 1919. But I know you did know his daughter, Eva. How did she represent her, her father? Great question. Um, She was my godmother and allowed me to spend most of my happiest days at Daughtry Hall. Um, It was still in the family at that stage? uh, Yeah, she she inherited it from her brother Christopher, my grandfather. Um, God knows why it wasn't inherited by my father, but I suspect it was because he was a bit loose with his money. and um, I believe it sold for about 32 million euros about 12 years ago. Oh, that was, those were different times. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, she represented him mainly, um, and it was she who was the only one who really talked about him, because my father didn't, and my mother didn't know much about him. So she really represented him through a portrait um, which hung in Dartry Hall, and uh, I've kind of spent my life looking into portraits and trying to imagine what people were really like. There's a wonderful book called Daughter of Time about Richard III by Josephine Tay, which kind of proves that he wasn't a murderer and a criminal. And uh, I kind of looked at this man who was supposedly, you know, the archenemy of 
uh, what was he called? The um, the the demon of the proletariat or something. I don't know. I think it the was the, vo- the, vo- the, uh, the word vulture was mentioned. Or there's a very famous character. Uh, yeah, vulture. He got vulture, vampire, etc., etc. And I kind of looked at him. I thought he was rather sad. Um, I don't know when the painting was painted, but presumably it was in the last few years of his life. What I did get to hear about him was that he faced up to the unions, led the employers. It was mainly positioned as him trying to protect his business. My understanding later was that he wasn't anti-unions. He was anti-the Larkin Union. Um, well, he wasn't anti-craft union. He dealt with craft unions, I think, exactly, uh, for yes. all his life. But certainly he was anti-unskilled uh, labour unions. Apparently so, Yeah. And um, it was interesting that a lot of the Protestant employers kind of put him up as a bit of a fall guy. By by um, putting him at the front of the employers, it appears that he was perhaps um, going to be more demonized than many of the other employers were. But he was, he was certainly not as, not supposedly as caring or generous a man as the Guinness um, person who, you know, uh, reclaimed whole tracts of impoverished Dublin and rebuilt it in later years. So I, th- I think uh, William Martin Murphy was a curious mixture of somebody who was very charitable. I've, I've seen a letter uh, written to the great, um, sorry, the great-grandfather of somebody who worked with my sister Louise in Canada. That letter was um, to a boilermaker who had been badly injured while working for William Martin Murphy in one of his businesses probably the tramways, and um, William Martin Murphy undertook to support him at a time when Ireland had no welfare state, to support the spoiler maker for the rest of his life on condition, to support him and his family on condition that he never told anybody about it. So that only came out about 15 years ago. So he was, we, he, he was somebody, as you say, he could accommodate with unions, but um, what he feared, I think, with with Larkin was that uh, Larkin's union was socialist, it was communist, it was syndicalist, mm-hmm. so it was something different. I think it was, actually, he, he genuinely felt his businesses were very much threatened and reacted as most business people would be. I mean, I own my own businesses in Australia and I've had my business threatened twice um, and I've reacted against that. I've been to protect myself, but I haven't done anybody any harm in the doing of it. I also understand that he allowed his workers back before other employers did. Is that true? I beg your pardon, he allowed his workers back? Before other employers did. That I couldn't say. I'm not too sure about that. I I understand that uh, the tramways workers went back in October, having gone out in August, and uh, that um, many others didn't get back or the lockout wasn't ended for many others until January. But I would have to rely on historians for to corroborate that. Okay, that uh, I, I certainly can't help you with that one. I'm not too sure about that one myself. Um, Aoife, Aoife Breslin, um, uh, uh, I'm interested in talking to you about Jim Larkin, but also about Delia Larkin, because um, his sister was somebody mm. who was very, very important, and her role in the in, in the lockout tends to get overlooked, doesn't it? I think from for a long period of time that she's been overshadowed by Big Jim. 
I think she worked very closely with Big Jim. I think if you look at the pieces that have been written about her, that she was a very, very capable person, a person that believed in social justice to a huge degree. And at, yet at the same time, she believed in cultural changes and she believed in empowering people and making their lives better. She was a great suffragette. I also believe that she was probably a woman before her time. Um, you know, and the work that she did alongside James. And I think she, in many ways she complimented him too. You know, he was seen as the lion and maybe she was seen as the tiger in, in relation to that. But I, I do think that she has been forgotten about over time and the people that worked with her, the likes of Rosie Hackett and women like that, you know. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a movement now starting to come together to recognise that the work that these women did. I think when you come from a family like mine, you can only be in awe of the work that has been done through the generations and particularly in relation to Delia and stuff like that, that maybe that I've latched on to in my political career or my, my career subsequently. Yeah, did she, because of the fact that he was, you know, he was an awkward character, there's no doubt about that. Uh, did she have to pick up some of the pieces after him or do a little, a lot of cleaning up after him to some extent in terms of relationships? I, I, the point of being an awkward character, I think he lived in the moment, he had a vision. He wanted social justice for people. He wanted to change people's lives. To say if that's awkward... I, that's debatable, but he had a vision and the vision, he, he had a way of get, going but, about it. I mean, my point is that he didn't get on with some of the people who were essentially on the same side of the fence and the same side of the argument as he was. It's one thing not getting on with your enemies, that's not to be expected, but uh, I think, not getting on with James yeah, Connolly, for example. I think, and I think to some degree that may be overestimated and I think, you know, in, you know, if you look through the generations and the generations between the Larkins and the Connollys subsequently, you know, I don't think that's totally true. I think he was very tunnel vision. And I think, you know, if you had a vision, he certainly was going to get to that hell, hell, hell or rain or whatever. I think to some degree, yes, she did pick up the pieces from him. I think she was a better organiser than him. I think if you look at the work she did in relation to, you know, the soup kitchens and the, the housing issues and stuff like that, she probably, like a lot of women, was a lot more practical and mm. a lot more thought out. If this if, if this had happened in 2013 and not 1913, even if it had happened in, uh, you know, 2083, or sorry, 1983 or 1993, would we be talking about Delia Larkin and not Jim Larkin, do you think? No, and I, you know, I would hope that Delia would have come to the, to the rise and get the recognition that she deserves. But first and foremost, I mean, Jim... Larkin was a huge character. Mm. Was, she wasn't the public face. She as he wasn't was. the public face. But you've got to remember as well. I mean, it was a very hard time for women in those days. You know, women weren't to the fore. You know, necessarily. And she had received the backing of her family, and she had received the same entitlements as the rest of her brothers within it. And she had been pushed, by, I believe, by her mother at the time as well. Um, to move on to uh, to James Connolly, because um, uh, uh, James Connolly, obviously, uh, James Connolly Heron was better known, I think, for his role in the 1916 Rising. But he did have a significant role in the 1913 lockout. And in fact, that was when the Citizens Army was born, wasn't yes, it? Yes, I mean, <clears throat> uh, Connolly and Larkin were both, I suppose, giants of the Labour movement. And you refer to difficulties arising between them. It would be unnatural if difficulties didn't arise between them because they were two great personalities. Um, but they certainly, the 1913 lockout certainly solidified their relationship and there was great respect between them. And certainly within my own family, I have to say my grandfather spoke very highly of Jim Larkin. So certainly the any difficulties that arose were not handed down through uh, through the generations. Um, Yes, Connolly would be better known, I suppose, in the sense that he that he participated in the Rising as a leading figure in the Rising through the Citizen Army, and 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 that was a uh, the, the thirteen lockout in itself was a pivotal event in our history. But but 
became even more becomes even more important because it's directly linked to the rising because it gave Connolly the clout when he um, decided to form an alliance with the nationalist movement. It gave him the clout that he had an armed I w- force. I, w- I want to come to that uh, in, in a moment, but just in terms of 1913, was he? would you see him as the organising force, as the intellectual force, whereas you know James Larkin was the more, was the more public well, face? Well, James, James Larkin would have been the more public force in the sense that he was a great orator and a great... My, my grandfather spoke of him as a great rabble-rouser, and that, not, that's not in a disparaging way. He was, whereas Connolly, my grandfather would would have said, appealed more to the intellect of his audience. So there were two different characters in, ter- in the sense of their approach, but but in fact, they were a formidable team as a result. And um, the, the the lockout, as we describe it, in actual fact, from their point of view, was actually a Dublin labour war. It, it was it was it was a struggle against class against class. It was a class war. Chris referred to the fear that William Martin Murphy had about his business. But it was, there was also a fear in that class that the, that that there was a, that the underclass that, that there was suddenly in a movement of the underclass and that yep. their class position was threatened. Uh, Christopher, you agree with that, yeah? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I think, uh, and it was complicated by the nationalism, the anti-nationalism. I mean, Ireland was a was like a hot pot at the time, um, even as later history shared with the anti-treaty and the treaty people and, you know, the fact that Larkin was born overseas, Connolly was born in Edinburgh, um, um, Martin Murphy was born in Cork and Countess Markovic... Contrary to popular belief, Christopher, that's not a foreign foreign country. No, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, well said, but I'm I'm not... They do have their own ways, but they are Irish. (laughs) I'm not making the point very well, but um, I it would have been an extraordinary time. And there were many changes of loyalties and affiliations at that time, as we know. So I would have imagined that it was an incredibly confusing point of history. I mean, like William Martin Murphy didn't even know about the Sunday, bloody Sunday march, uh, apparently. Uh, and while um, if if his newspaper actually urged for... James Connolly to be shot, I believe that to be obscene because I'm an Irish nationalist at heart. Um, but he disavowed it. So, you know, I mean, like, who do you believe? Mm. Uh, Jay, uh, James, just to, uh, to finish on, uh, on James Connolly, was it what happened in 1913? Was it a reaction to that which persuaded him to join forces with the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1916 and to do what some people like Sean O'Casey, for example, would see as the abandonment of socialist well, ideas. to an extent, because he was gravely disappointed with the, the attitude of the established established uh, labour movement in England, that the support they got wasn't um, what he had expected. Um, at at grassroots, grassroots level, they, they did get support through um, economic assistance and the food chips, etc. But the, in the higher echelons of the labour movement in England, 
let them down. So th- yes, there would have been an element of that, but but he had always preached that the the struggle for Irish freedom had two aspects: it was national and it was social. So he he was always intent on forming an alliance with national elements, and it was the great coming together of those uh-huh. three great movements in 1916, the, of the coming together of the national movement, so the workers, the social movement, and of course the cultural movement, the cultural revival, that led directly to the rising. So he would have had no problem with forming an alliances with the the leaders, the the leaders of the IRB at the time, who had in fact been radicalised themselves by the events of 1913 even Patrick Pierce himself referred to the 13 lockout and he wasn't he wasn't sure of Larkin's methods as he put it but he certainly uh-huh. thought that it was a great wrong that had to be righted Stella do you, are you happy that the lockout is being mem- remembered appropriately commemorated appropriately oh I am indeed I have been to quite a few things so far and I think it is a, a great memory of it now I think it is, yes. Aoife, do you see history repeating itself in 2013 to some extent? I think there Things haven't changed all that much, perhaps? They haven't changed all that much. We have made progress, but an awful lot of the problems that existed then exist now, maybe in different forms. I know we have issues in relation to trade union recognition, collective bargaining, you know, social justice, inclusiveness. But I do think we have made huge inroads, and I think Dee Larkin and Big Jim would be proud, still fighting the good battle, by all means. But I do think, you know, and I think the Labour Party and government, if I can get a plug in in relation to that, have made changes. And I think it's a long road, but I think we are turning the corner. And um, Christopher, in uh, in Sydney, do you or would you hope that out of the commemoration of the 1913 lockout, that uh, perhaps your father might, or your, your great grandfather might get a, a fairer crack of the whip? I obviously hope that, but um, <laughs> I have no idea what uh, what public opinion is about him now. I think it's going to be influenced by programs like this um, where you're giving us all a fair hearing. But it's very hard to represent our uh, predecessors because we weren't there. Okay. Um, and we only, we only hear the stories handed down that are obviously going to be biased to each family's history. Um, they're going to be biased in the positive. So I would, I would, um, I would hope that everybody gets fairness from it. Um, all of the main protagonists. Um, I cannot comment on whether history will repeat itself. Um, and I love the plug for the Labour Party. Good on you. <laughs> uh, finally, James, uh, you you brought in a, a medal. Just to explain this uh, this medal. This is a this was a medal given to James Connolly after. Presented to James Connolly by the Independent Labour Party after the 1913 lockout. There's an interesting quote in the back of it. It says, a felon's cap is the noblest crown an Irish head can wear. <laughs> referring to his time in prison. Um, the interesting thing about that, it refers also to Dublin's Labour War. So it's just a the way it was looked upon mm. by people in the labour movement it was much more than just a lockout. Well, thank you all very much indeed uh, for coming in and talking to us this morning. Stella McCollin, Aoife Breslin, James Connolly Heron, and on the phone from Australia, Christopher Martin Murphy. Episode four of the series Citizens, Lockout 1913-2013, an Athena Media production made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland airs tomorrow at uh, six o'clock on RTE Radio 1 and there's a web page on the RTE site for the project.